This is Don Mockholtz, and you're listening to Looking Up with Don. This is the Looking Up with Don podcast, episode number 90 for the week of September 22nd, 2021. The related website for this podcast is donmacholtz.com. That is spelled D-O-N-M-A-C-H-H-O-L-Z.com, two H's. What's up in the sky this week? As our week begins on Wednesday, September 22nd, the moon is 97% full and has just passed full phase. It is up and bright all night. By Tuesday, September 28th, the moon will be in our morning sky, rising about midnight and about half full with third quarter phase being shortly after midnight that night, universal time. The planet Venus is bright in our evening sky. As it appears to pull away from the sun, it's also moving south along the ecliptic. You might not notice this, but it is slowly getting brighter. And where is the planet Mars? A year ago, it was big news in the sky, approaching opposition, big and bright and up all night. It is now deep in our evening twilight, moving behind the sun, and it will do that on October 8th. Actually, it doesn't go directly behind the sun, but passes a half a degree north of the sun. Coincidentally, on that same day, October 8th, the tiny planet Mercury passes two degrees south of the sun, not on the far side, but on the near side. So Mars has a superior conjunction, while Mercury has an inferior conjunction. Now here's a riddle. Can there be a day that is both the first day of autumn and the first day of spring? Think about that for a minute. Okay, time's up. This Wednesday, September 22nd, is the first day of autumn in the Northern Hemisphere and the first day of spring in the Southern Hemisphere. The sun crosses the equator headed south. On that day, the sun rises approximately due east and sets approximately due west. I say approximately because... Due to refraction, you actually see the sun before it rises. And you also see it after it sets by a couple of minutes. And your horizon may not be at zero degrees as hills, trees, and houses get in the way. The right ascension of the sun on September 22nd is 12 hours. It changes by about two hours of right ascension each month. I'm a bit behind in reading my astronomy magazines. I just read that there will be a total solar eclipse on August 21st, 2017. Did I miss it? Will you be able to see the International Space Station this week 
which for our purposes begins Wednesday, September 22nd through Tuesday, September 28th. It depends upon where you are located. This week we have four zones. All you need to know is your latitude. North of 63 degrees north, you will not see it at all. Between 36 and 63 degrees north, the ISS will be in your evening sky for the whole week. And on some nights, you can see it twice. Between 17 degrees south and 36 degrees north, the ISS will not be visible at all this week. And between 55 degrees south and 17 degrees south, the International Space Station will be in your morning sky. Towards the southern part of this area, 50 degrees south and south of that, it will be in your sky for only the second part of the week. In the north part of this area, 17 to minus 30 degrees latitude, the ISS will be in your morning sky for only the first part of the week. To determine where it will be in your sky, go to the website heavens-above.com and enter your location, then click on ISS. You can also use the website heavens-above.com to find the location of other satellites and comets and the planets. Astronomy can be divided into two camps, observational astronomy and theoretical astronomy. Observational astronomy is visually observing or imaging the heavens. We, we do that all the time. This podcast and most of my life have been about observational astronomy. Theoretical astronomy is putting together the theories and measurements to build a model of the universe. We don't do much of that here. One works at night, the other works during the day. Most of us are observational astronomers. However, I suggest that from time to time you take in an astronomy lecture, article, or book about theoretical astronomy at least to be aware of the current hypothesis of how everything fits together. When I have attended astronomy conventions or local astronomy club meetings, either in person or on Zoom, I have learned a lot about theoretical astronomy by listening to lectures. But I want to talk about observational astronomy for a few minutes. I read social media. I visit Facebook once a week when I upload this podcast and Twitter almost every night before I go to sleep. I see lots of amateur astronomers posting some very good images of galaxies, clusters, nebula, comets, and planets. These are images they took with their backyard telescopes. Fifty years ago, And until around the year 2000, amateur astronomers used photographic film to image the sky. Results were fair to good, and as the years went by, amateur astronomers got better and better at astrophotography. Films became more sensitive, and they also learned how to make existing films more sensitive to light. Guiding the telescope became automated, 
So a photographer did not need to sit at the eyepiece and correct the tracking. I did some astrophotography in the 1970s. Usually it was either a camera on a tripod pointed at the sky or piggyback on my telescope, not shooting through it, but using the telescope to track the camera with stars. I also took photos of the moon and sometimes the planets with a camera on a tripod set up on the ground and pointed through the eyepiece of the telescope. I do have a set of about 80 color slides, each showing a part of the sky and altogether showing the whole sky. These were taken on a camera tripod, short exposures of about 20 to 30 seconds. This was a project I did back in the 1970s, and it took me about a year. Almost everything else that I photographed was in black and white, as that was much less expensive than color. It's about a third of the cost. I had my own darkroom equipment, and I developed the film and printed the pictures myself. And I even wound some cassettes with Tri-X and other specialized astronomy film for my 35mm camera. My 1970s were almost all black and white. A few of my photographs ended up in magazines. Both Sky and Telescope and Astronomy have printed one or two of my images. More often, however, I would get the rejection letter and my photos returned. I have a few of those rejection letters still stored away in the shop. A small magazine called Observer Sky printed many of my images on their front cover. That was in the mid-1970s. That magazine went out of business. Maybe that is why. I stopped my astrophotography efforts after that. To continue would have been increased cost, which I did not have, and a detour from visual observing. And even then, 90% of my astronomy was visual because I enjoy the view of the sky through the telescope. Nowadays, the only astronomical images I take are with my cell phone, holding it to the eyepiece for a shot of the moon, for instance, Last year, I shot a few of Comet Neowise with a camera on a tripod. But let's get back to amateur astrophotography and what changed about the year 2000. Charged coupled devices, also known as CCDs, are perhaps better described as electronic cameras, began to become popular. They attach to your telescope, usually in place of the eyepiece, and they send, via a cable, the images to your computer. Then you use a computer program to increase contrast, crop the image, lighten or darken areas, and so on. At least three things occurred which greatly improved astrophotography, which then became known as astroimaging. First, several images of shorter exposure can be stacked one electronically placed on top of the other to increase contrast. A computer program does all of this for you. This works well for deep sky objects such as nebula and galaxies. In fact, images can be taken a few hours a month for several months since those objects do not change much over time. 
In a year, you could have hundreds of hours of imaging of the same object. Second, especially for planets in the moon, many short exposures, some as short as one thousandth of a second, can be captured. Then a computer program sorts through each and finds the clearest ones and stacks them. The unsteady atmosphere can finally be tamed. Third, the use of filters. Filters can exclude light pollution and other types of stray or unwanted light and allow through only a few wavelengths. This is amazing. In a light-polluted sky like in downtown whatever city or during moonlight or during twilight, images, good images, can still be secured. I am impressed with the images I see on social media. Having said that, when you see great images taken and processed by amateur astronomers, don't think for a minute that this is all there is to astronomy. Most amateur astronomers do visual observing only and really enjoy doing so. They do not have images to post on the internet but they're still out there every night looking at the sky. One does not need an image of something to prove that they have seen it. The end goal for many of us is not an image, but simply the joy and satisfaction of observing something in the sky. On the way to that goal, we take the scenic route. With the moon leaving the evening sky this week, we can get back to observing some comets. Podcast 90, Map 4, has our evening sky comets plotted for the next few weeks. They are generally magnitude 10 to 11. You can also get the positions for these and other comets from the website heavens-above.com. Click on Comets. This week, we will find and observe some objects in our evening southern sky. They are the last four objects in order that we search for in the late March Messe Marathon. They are globular clusters M2, M72, M30, and a small group of stars known as M73. They are plotted on Podcast 90, Map 4. We begin with M2, which is magnitude 7.0 and 8 arc minutes in size. It sits about 37,000 light years from us. Charles Messier saw it on September 11, 1760. The cluster has a soft glow with, without a bright core. At higher magnification, you can see some of the stars in the outer portion of the cluster. We next move south to M72. It's magnitude 9.0 and 4 arc minutes in size. This globular cluster is twice the distance of M2. I've always found it to be diffuse, not standing out very well against the background. This cluster is best seen in large aperture and at high magnification. M73 is a star asterism made up of four stars. Now, Charles Messier thought he saw some nebulosity involved, but there is none. 
To find it from M72, go one-tenth of a degree south and 1.3 degrees east to get to M73. The magnitude is 9.2, and it's two arc minutes in size, made up again of four stars. Our final object is M30. It's a globular cluster. Magnitude 8.1, and it's four arc minutes in size. It does stand out against the background. However, during the late March Messe Marathon, it can be challenging as it is seen near the horizon and in twilight. There is a star of 5.5 magnitude, one half degree east of it. This helps in finding it in twilight. At high magnification, the outer stars resolve well. To recap the podcast, what's up this coming week? The first day of autumn is this week in the northern hemisphere and the first day of spring in the southern hemisphere. Go out and look at Venus, Jupiter, and Saturn and see some globular clusters in our evening sky. You have been listening to Looking Up with Don, podcast episode number 90 for September 22nd, 2021. I'm Don Knuckles. Once again, the related website for this podcast is donmockholtz.com. That is spelled D-O-N-M-A-C-H-H-O-L-Z.com. Two H's. You can contact me at dontheastronomer at gmail.com. Once again, that's dontheastronomer at gmail.com. God willing and pod willing, I'll be back next week for another episode of Looking Up with Don. We will discuss what's up in the sky. I'll talk about the moons of Jupiter and Saturn. And we'll look at some morning sky comets and evening sky deep sky objects. All that and more. Thank you for listening. See the sky this week. I'll see you next week.